Yeah, so today uh, we're actually starting a, our, our, our new series, sermon series, and, um, you know, I wanted to um, kind of introduce you guys a little bit to uh, why we are going to this series, um, and yeah, this year our church's theme is uh, press on, right, and that the goal is ultimately the heavenward in Christ, right, and so our, our goal is to press on towards Christ. And as a church, we're seeking the next step where God is calling each of, each of us to take our lives uh, towards greater maturity in Him. And in this process, uh, we have been asking our members, especially in this season of Lent and fasting, uh, to really prayerfully, uh, before God, ask two questions. Um, the first one uh, Pastor Tony has been sharing is that, am I moving forward in my spiritual maturity? And I hope you guys have been wrestling with that. And the second question is, am I... Am I building towards something of eternal value? Is what I'm doing right now, whatever I'm doing, is this in 100 years from now going to matter at all, right? And, and, and that's what we need to be asking about our lives as a whole, as a whole right? I'm not saying you can't, like, brush your teeth, or, you know, <laughs> but it's saying, like, in, in 100 years, what my life is building towards, is it going to matter in 100 years from now? And I think that's the two questions that we want to wrestle with as a church. And another question I might add to this is, how can we actually press on? How can we actually do this? How can we actually implement uh, these steps that we want to take in our life towards God? Because uh, sometimes, let's be honest, you know, even after the retreat, you know, we made these commitments and plans. It was a lot easier said than done, right, to take these steps towards Christ. And that's, pro- that's why, uh, as pastors, we were praying about what's, what, what would be the best sermon series to actually encourage our church in this step towards growth in Christ. And, and we came out with... Triple A, right? Um, you guys know Triple A, right? It's what you call when you're stranded on the road, your tire's flat, or maybe you left your keys in the car, and you're like, oh no, I'm not getting out of this parking lot tonight. And you have to call Triple A to come. They find you where you're at on the road. What do they do? They either break into your car legally, give you your keys back, or they fill that flat tire for you so that you can continue on your way. And that's, that's the point is that as Christians, we are on our way to press on towards the goal in Christ. We are not there yet, and our entire life is pressing on towards that goal, and we need assistance. And so AAA that God has provided for us in the book of Ephesians is adopt, adopted, anchored, and alive, right? When we understand these three A's, it will actually allow us to press forward and it is the roadside assistance for those who would walk worthy of the call in Christ. And so um, that's the thing. God meets you where you're at. You don't have to uh, be there yet. But wherever you're at, God will find you. And he will give you the assistance. He promises to give you the assistance you need um, to continue. Um, and so wherever you're at, church, you know, like Pastor Tony says, it's okay to be a baby. It's not okay to stay there. Amen. And so wherever we are, whether we are a baby, whether we're not even a Christian yet, it doesn't matter where you are on your journey, right? God will meet you there if you're willing to press on towards him. And so uh, that's what we uh, prayed, for, prayed over this book. And these triple A's, they, they actually describe for us three, um, three gospel identities that actually allow us to actually live out what God is calling us to. These are three gospel callings that God has called you to adoption in Christ, that he's adopted you into his family, he's adopted you as his own sons, and 
in that, uh, you know, your identity actually shapes what you live out, right? Whatever you believe about yourself, what you believe to the question, who am I, will drive how you live. And so the gospel reminds us that you have been adopted. And the second thing is that you've been anchored, right? You're anchored by God uniting you to himself. And that includes meaning you're united to his body. That means there are others that you are united to. You have a church that is called your body. And as Christians, we are to strive for unity in that. And then third is we are anchored or we are alive. God brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. So now we have a new um, way of life we are to walk in. And so uh, that's what Ephesians really hammers down for us. It's it's a very simple book in terms of its structure. It's actually two parts. There's chapter one to three talks about God, what God did, God's story, right? And then chapter four to six, right, transitions with one word. This is what God did for you in Christ Jesus. He's adopted you. He's anchored you. He's made you alive. Therefore, then in the second half of Ephesians, it says, how then shall we walk? How then shall we live? And there's where the commandments come in. You know, strive for unity, strive for um, love. If you're adopted in, into God's love, then you should also walk in love, right? And so that's the, that's the secret to the Christian life, right? You have to first be grasped by and grasp the love of God for yourself. And this is, this is, um, this is what I'm convinced of. It's to the degree in which you've been grasped and been grasped by the reality that Christ has adopted you as sons of God, to the degree that you have been grasped by the reality of his love for you is the degree to which you can actually press on forward in the Christian life. Meaning you and I can't grow a single inch in our maturity towards Christ without growing in our understanding, comprehension, and experience of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. And that's why if you guys went to the retreat, what was the first R? Remain. Remain in me and I will remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Only in me can you actually bear spiritual fruit that lasts. Only in me can you actually press on towards the goal. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it apart from the vine. And that's why Paul repeats this language, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you are adopted. In Christ, you are anchored. In Christ, you are alive. And only when we actually understand this identity and been grasped by this identity can we actually press forward. And that's the how. It's a book of Ephesians telling us how we actually press on and and live in in that um, calling that God has given us. And then, so today's uh, a sermon in a sentence is this. And one, 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 one other disclaimer, right? If you, if you feel yourself distant from God, if you feel yourself separated from God, let's, be, let's, just, let's just go all the way out there. You're separated from God. You're not a believer. Um, maybe you find it difficult to grow towards God. You're an immature believer. Or you find yourself with no love for the lost and others around you. Then you're a selfish believer, if you find yourself knowing a lot in your head and going through the motions, but you feel dry and you have no passion, you're a believer who has forgotten their first love. Right? In fact, when Jesus writes to the churches, when he speaks to the church of Ephesus, he says, return to your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. And 
And so the need for all of these different, if any of those describe you, the need is all the same. It's that we have to once again be grasped by God's love for us. That you and I have to return to our first love. And once we have understood that, can we actually step and move forward? So today, um, we're going to look at book of Ephesians chapter 1. If you would stand with me um, for the hearing of God's word. If you're able, yeah. If you can't, no worries, stay seated. But only if you're able. Um, we stand um, as, as an act of worship as we hear the words of our king. Um, so this is the word of God, holy word of God from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have been redemption. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we shall inquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's holy and infallible word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, let me, let me uh, pray for us. Let's bow our heads and... I'm actually going to end our prayer from a prayer actually in the book of Ephesians. And this is actually the one section of Ephesians we won't actually be able to cover explicitly. Um, so one part we had to leave out, otherwise our sermon series would get too long. I wanted to preach through, but we just, we had too many sermons. And so, um, but I'm going to pray it in the prayer as I pray for us, because I feel like it's appropriate. Um, it's at the end of chapter 3, uh, verse 14 to 21. This is actually the end of the first section, the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he bursts out and prays to God in prayer for God's people. And I think it's appropriate because it, 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 it frames us on what we're about to enter into as we get into the book of Ephesians. So let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if you got that, but that prayer is um, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. Um, it tells us that Paul asks actually for the Ephesians and the church, you guys, to, to be rooted in God's love, to be rooted in Christ. And he prays for all of the strength of God and spiritual strength for you, right? He's not asking you for physical strength. He's not asking for physical things. He's asking for spiritual strength, spiritual muscles. And why do we need those? What, for what purpose is Paul praying for that? He's praying for the purpose that you might have the strength to actually comprehend God's love because it's infinite. It's impossible to comprehend God's love. God's love is that big. It's that wide. It's that length, breadth, height, and depth. It's that infinite that, that you and I, if we were to try on our own to try to comprehend, we would just be swept away. And so you and I have to be rooted by the power of God to actually sustain us, to even venture into the depth of God's love. And that's what we find in the intro of Ephesians. We see Paul's, um, you know, I, um, verse 3 to 14 is actually, in the Greek, it's, a, it's one run-on sentence. You know, I'm an English major, and I am, I am not a grammar Nazi. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. I, I, I have the worst grammar ever. I'm a grammar pacifist, okay? Because, um, you know, the English version, you know, the translation we have of this is actually grammar, not, grammar Nazified, right? The actual... Verse 3 to 14, that entire section is one sentence in the Greek. There's no punctuation. There's no periods. It's just one stream of run on. And I used to get that in my first year, especially of English major. I would get on my paper all these red marks, run on, run on, run on, period here, period here, period here, right? And I, I, I'm a little bit better now, but yeah, I was really guilty of that, right, run on sentence. But sometimes I think it's, it's appropriate, right? It's appropriate to... to to have these run-on sentences, because that's the only way to actually express what's being expressed here. Right? Paul, as he's blessing God, right? when we bless God, it's not the same way where God blesses us. God blesses us, he gives us things. We don't bless God by giving things. Right? When, when, when the Bible says blessed be, it only refers to God. It doesn't say blessed be Tony or blessed be Paul. Right? It might say blessed is the one who, you know, but it never says blessed be. Blessed be belongs to God. It's praise. The only thing we can respond to with God is praise. There's nothing God needs from us, right? And so what Paul does is he begins his letter by praising God. He says, blessed be the God of our Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as he starts thinking about every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus, he starts to lose it. He just goes on and run on sentence. He can't help himself. He just bursts forth in praise. He can't contain when he just thinks about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. 
And that's how we should approach. That's how, that's how our hearts should be as we approach God's blessings that he gives us in Christ Jesus. And so today's sermon and sentence is this. Praise God for in his son we have been adopted as sons, right? Very simple. Sermon and sentence. If you forget anything, sorry, I don't have it on this slide, but um, it's because it's I probably sent it this morning. That's why, right? But uh, praise God because in his son, he has adopted us to be sons, right? Praise God because in his son, he has adopted us to be sons. And I know what you guys are thinking. Like, if you guys are girls, sisters here, like, why? Wait, is Pastor Paul being sexist here? Why doesn't he say, like, sons and daughters, right? Is the Bible being sexist? It's not, right? I'm just using the Bible's language, right? Deal with it, right? The Bible calls you sons in Christ. And there's a reason why. It's special. Because if, if, if you're talking about equality, you know, in chapter 5, he's going to call us the bride, okay? He's going to call the church the bride, so that includes the brothers, right? You guys are the bride of Christ, right? And so it's equal in that sense. But the reason why the Bible says sons is this. When God looks at you, he doesn't just look at you as any child. He looks at you as he sees his own son, Jesus Christ, right? So when God adopts you as his sons, he sees you as not just any son. He sees you as the perfect son, the one who he looked on eternally with love, his beloved son, who can do him no wrong, who he can never have an ill thought towards. That's how he sees you when you're adopted. And not only that, in the ancient world, sons are the only ones who could actually inherit the name. They're the only ones who can actually have an inheritance. And so what that means is there's equality. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl in the church. If you're adopted into God's house, you have every privilege. You have the very name of God on you. And you have the promised inheritance. Right? It's not like sons get more. You guys are all sons. We all get the same thing. And so that's why the Bible says you're adopted as sons, okay? Um, but with that, um, I have a, a few points for us. What is it? Adoption. Why adoption? And, um, you know, uh, if you look at the first verse, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on these verses because, you know, Paul has a lot of introductions in his letters, but I think there's something to be found here. The way Paul introduces himself to the church of Ephesus. And if you don't know, the church of Ephesus in the book of Acts chapter 19, right, is where Paul actually spent a lot of time in. It was one of those places where he spent, invested like two, three years of his life pouring out to them. And that's why in Acts chapter 20, the farewell is so painful, right? They're crying and they're weeping because they know they won't see Paul again. Because after that, he's imprisoned, right? In fact, Paul's writing this from prison. And you notice because later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul will say, I'm a prisoner in chains for the gospel, right? I'm speaking to you in chains. So it's Paul speaking to this church that he truly loves. He's speaking to them and he's calling them saints. He's reminding them who they are. He's reminding them of everything that he taught them. And, and Paul introduces himself as an apostle. That's, that's something because Later on, chapter 4, he will say apostles are the ones who laid the foundation for God's church. It's the ones that God has set to set the foundation and the pillar for the entire church. You and I would not be here without the apostles, right? They were the chosen 12 men, right, 
that Jesus revealed himself to after his resurrection, right? Judas was replaced by another, and he commissioned them to lay down the foundations for the church, to go and proclaim the gospel, and to write the New Testament down. In fact, if there were no apostles, you guys, you and I will not be here. The church would not be here. And Paul is saying, I am one of them. I am an apostle. But what's crazy about that, for Paul to say that is is amazing because Paul was the least likely to be the apostle. He was a persecutor of the church. He actually vehemently hated the church. He wanted Christians punished. He wanted their downfall. He wished for their downfall because he thought he was more religious than them. He He thought these people worship this guy, human being, as the son of God. How dare they? Paul couldn't stand Christians. And that's why Paul calls himself in later other other epistles that he finds himself to be the least of the apostles. He finds himself to uh, be the chief of all sinners. And yet Paul says, I'm an apostle, not by my will, but by God's will. It wasn't my doing. And if that's true of me, it's true of you. You are a saint, not because of your own doing, but because of God's doing. It's the testimony of every Christian to say, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You and I are not called saints because we we deserve to be called saints, but by God's will, by God's grace. And that's why Paul says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This comes out almost in all of Paul's letter without exception, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And why is that? Because these are Paul's two favorite words summary words for the entire gospel, grace and peace. For Paul, these two words is the summary words that capsulate every spiritual blessing that God gives us in Jesus Christ. Grace because it's a gift. It's unconditional. You didn't deserve it. You receive it, not of your own merit, but by God's free love. And peace because you and I, without God, had no peace with God. We had, in fact, no peace with each other, right? There's division, there's alienation, there's hostility. And the only way that that could be bridged was that Jesus had to come down and take the punishment for our sins. And only then can we truly have peace. So grace and peace for Paul is the summary of the gospel, of the benefits of, of everything Jesus gives us. And so that's why he says, Paul... Blessed be God because he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You know, when we usually think about blessing, how God blesses us, we usually think about physical things. We think about hashtag blessed. You see like someone with a nice car, you're like, oh, I got my new car today. Hashtag blessed. Or, you know, you have a nice like vacation with your family. Hashtag blessed. Um, and and these, these are true blessings, Right? They are true blessings, for real. Physical blessings are real blessings. The fact that you have clothes on your back, the fact that we have food on the table, the fact that we have a roof over our head, the fact that we're in a country that's not at war, right? That's blessed. That's, that's real physical blessings that God gives us that we take for granted, and we should recognize them. In fact, the very air we are breathing right now is blessed. But what Paul is saying and drawing our attention to is not the physical blessings. He's telling us to see the spiritual blessings that are far more richer, far more worth praising God for. You and I will proclaim on our social media our physical blessings, but how often do we proclaim our spiritual blessings? 
physical blessings will all end with us. They will all fade away. They're not eternal. They don't last forever. They end with you. The spiritual blessings, they are forever. There's an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Spiritual blessing is, in Paul's eyes, what is ultimately worth blessing God for. And so that's what Paul is drawing our attention to in this passage. And I would say the primary, not the primary blessing, the, the, the highest spiritual privilege that we have as Christians is adoption. Right? It's not our greatest and primary spiritual blessing. Right? Paul's going to list off a bunch of spiritual blessings that we have. Actually, our greatest spiritual need as Christians is we need forgiveness. Right? You and I, before God, stand guilty. God, as our judge, you and I need someone to save us. We need a savior. We need forgiveness. And that is the primary spiritual blessing, justification. That's, what the, that's the theological word for it. Spiritual blessing is justification. That's the primary and the grounds of all the other blessings that we need justification. We need God to count us at righteous. We need Jesus' righteousness to cover us. But the greatest spiritual privilege that we have as Christian is not justification because that just makes you cool with the judge. But it doesn't bring you in. So adoption is, 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 is the the greatest spiritual privilege we have as Christians where God says, you're my son and I bring you in to my own family. And so today we're gonna focus on that. What does it mean to be adopted as God's sons? And the first point is being adopted as God's sons means you are loved. It means you are loved. In verse 4, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Being adopted as God's sons means you are loved. And you are not loved because anything of you have done, or do, or will ever do for him, but simply because you are loved. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's this children's book that um, I read, and it's, a, it's a, about a daddy squirrel and, a, and a, um, a baby squirrel. And it's just a really cute story, but I think it, it really helps us to see what, what God's love for you as his son looks like. It says, one day a little red squirrel and his daddy went playing in the big woods. The son rushed off shouting, daddy, look at me. And he showed off how fast he could run. Then the father called out to him, little red squirrel, did I tell you today that I love you? Because why, asked the little red squirrel. He was spinning around in circles and he said, daddy, do you love me because I'm so fast? Then he fell over because he was dizzy. No, that's not why, his daddy laughed as he picked him up. The day went, and the son continued to show his father what he could not, showing off his top secret stash of berries, climbing up high into the branches, balancing on the high hedges. And each time he would say, do you love me because how strong I am? Or because I'm so absolutely brave? 
Or maybe it's because of how handsome and friendly I am. And each time the father replied smiling, indeed you are a little red squirrel, but that's not why. Finally, indeed you are a little red squirrel, but that's not why. Finally, the little red squirrel yawned sleepily, tired after a long day he had spent with his father in the woods. The father tucked his sleepy son snugly into his nest. Little red squirrel, you are very fast and strong and handsome and friendly and even good at finding berries, but that's not why I love you. And then daddy kissed his head and he whispered into his ears, no, little one, I love you just because you are mine. This is what illustrates the kind of love God has for his son. He loves you because you are his, because he chose you. And I'm not going to get into a debate about predestination because that would be defeating the purpose of this passage. It will distract from what this passage is saying. Right? Whether you believe that God chose us because he foreknew that we would choose him, that we would put our faith in him, or God chose us simply by his sovereign will, that's not important because we all agree on one thing. We're saved. We are chosen by his grace. We didn't deserve it. And we all agree that we have to be born again into a new family. And that's what we can agree on. And that's what we should be focused on, is that you and I did not deserve the spiritual blessings that God's son should receive. Right? That's what adoption means. This is uh, what um, a theologian said is the uh, five things that kind of distinguish an adopted son versus a regular son. Because there's only one true, whole, uh, eternally begotten Son of God. That's Jesus Christ. There's a dis- distinction between us and Jesus. We are adopted. An adopted son means that we had a previous family we belonged to. And secondly, it means that there was a family that we had no rights to. There was another family we had no rights to. We had no rights to God's family. And thirdly, it means that there was an authoritative legal translation from one family to another. And then, fourthly, it means that the adopted person is freed from all obligations to the family which he came from. And fifthly, it means that by virtue of this transition, this change, he is invested with all the rights, privileges, and advantages of this new family. When the Bible says you're adopted, it means that you used to belong to a different family. You used to belong to the family of the house of Satan. The Bible says Jesus came to rob the rich man, to tie up the rich man so he could plunder his house. Plunder his house of what? You and I. You and I used to belong to the grips of Satan, sin, and death. You guys were a slave to sin. You were a child of of, of this world. You and I had no claim to the kingdom of God. You and I had no claim to God's family. And so when God adopted you, he came and he rescued you and he brought you into his home. And so that's what adoption means. It means that God saves us not because of anything we have done. Uh, God loves you simply because you are his. And then the second thing is that being an adopted son means you have been forgiven, right? He says in verse 7, in him you have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You know, when we uh, think of adoption, you don't think of like adopting like someone who's 
living in Bel Air, someone who has everything they need, has a house, has parents already, right? You're not going to go and try to steal someone else's son. That doesn't make sense. When you think of adoption, you think about someone who without your help, right, there would be no future. You think about people in desperate situations. You think about kids in war zones, kids who are left orphaned. You think of people, children who, who, who have, have, have no way out of the situation on their own. And when God chose us, that's how he saw us. He saw us as a people not who are self-sufficient, people who are okay, who had a good, good, good enough um, life without him. He found us in the situation where we were dead, where we, were, uh, we had no, um, no way out, where we were lost. And the Bible said that he redeemed us with his blood. And when we think of the word redemption, you know, I could give you a rhyme. What does it mean? We hear that word a lot in, in Christianity, redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, I'll give you guys a quick, like, sentence to help you remember. Redemption means you reclaim what is lost at a cost. You reclaim what is lost at a cost. When Jesus came to redeem you, he redeemed you because you were lost, and he redeemed you at a cost. He laid his very life down for you in order to bring you home. That was the price he had to pay to take you out from um, the household of Satan, the household of sin and death, so that they would no longer have any claim over you. He had to pay with his life. There was a cost. And I'll give you an example of this, a, a, real, a real life example. Right? There was a pastor in, uh, in Korea during the time of... Um, uh, where all the communism was happening, right? And so there were communist armies um, going around, um, and, and, um, and he had two sons, and actually, I don't know what they were doing, but I guess they were disobeying, doing something they weren't supposed to do in, in the communist government, and they were shot and killed. And uh, the pastor heard word of this, um, and he, um, he, 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 he um, yeah, he heard about what happened. He was heartbroken. He was devastated. And later on, his church members, you know, they wanted justice. They, they went out and they found one of those soldiers that shot his kids. And this soldier, he was indoctrinated at a young age, so he was, pretty, he was a pretty young kid too, himself. And he was just doing what he was commanded. He killed, he shot and killed the sons. And they brought him to the pastor. And imagine what the pastor, pastor's feeling. He's feeling, man, how could you give me back my sons? That, 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 that's probably what would have been the first words he says. But instead he says, uh, he's, when he found out this was the one who shot his son, he said, you're my son now. Because I want you to know that's what God's love looks like. And he wrote a book about this. It's called The Atomic Bomb Love of, Atomic Love of Jesus Christ, something. It's a crazy title. But that's what God does. He takes his own son's murderers, you and I, we put Jesus on that cross because of our sins. He says, you're not my son. You're not my son. That's why when the prodigal son returns home, you guys know that story, he takes his father's inheritance, leaves his father, squanders it in while living. He's desperate. He's hungry. 
So he returns home. But in his mind, he says, I lost the right to be his son. I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. So he has his whole speech in mind. What does the father do? He runs after him. He embraces him. He covers him in a robe. He puts sandals on his feet. He puts a ring, his ring, on his finger. He says, let's celebrate. My son who was lost has come home. It's now found. Let's celebrate. And that's how God sees you. I don't know if you guys ever thought of that. How does God see me? How does God look at me right now when I've disobeyed him, when I'm still struggling with the same sins, when I am in a place where I feel like I'm still a baby Christian, or maybe I'm someone who I feel like the lost son. I don't even feel like I even have a relationship with God. How does God look at you? Well, God tells us through that story. He tells us through his son, Jesus Christ, who redeems us through his blood so that you would be holy and blameless, that your sins would be forgiven according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So that is, that, is, um, that is what it means to be adopted son of God. It means that you're forgiven. The third point is this. To be adopted son of God means you are, you are united to his family. You have a family. You know, I think, um, or actually, this kind of side, side thing, but I thought it was important. I was reading this book, Knowing God. I've been reading it with Pastor Kevin. Um, you know, if there's, like, if you guys never read this, there's one chapter I feel like it's worth reading the book for, right? There's just one chapter. There's a chapter on Sons of God. I read it. It, it. it would change your life. I encourage you. If there's one reason to get this book, there's one chapter, Sons of God. That's all you have to read, okay? It, it, it's, it's amazing. He breaks down what it means. And I can't go through all of it here, but um, one thing that he pointed out was, um, what if your earthly fathers were bad or missing? Does that mean we cannot experience God as our father, right? And some of us, that's the case. In our earthly worlds, we've never actually tasted what a love of a father was like. Does that mean we can never understand what it's like for God to love us as his father? And this is how J.I. Packer, this is not my words, okay? J.I. Packer says, but this is silly. He says, many young people get married with the resolve not to make the mess of marriage they saw their parents make. The truth is that all of us have a positive ideal of fatherhood by which we judge our own and other fathers, others' fathers. It can safely be said that the person for whom the thought of God's perfect fatherhood is meaningless or repellent does not exist. But in any case, God has not left us to guess what his fatherhood amounts to by drawing analogies from human fatherhood. He has revealed the full meaning of this relationship once and for all through our Lord Jesus Christ, his own incarnate son. For God intends the lives of the believers to be a reflection and reproduction of Jesus' own fellowship with himself. And then he later on points out four qualities of the relationship, the kind of relationship Jesus had with his father. There was a relationship of love. Jesus was truly loved by his father. Jesus was the world to his father. Jesus was, there was an authority. Jesus, I do nothing of my own authority. I do whatever the father tells me to do. There was a authority, a respect for his father. Thirdly, there was a um, there was a desire to please his father. 
Jesus says, whatever I do, not my will, but whatever pleases my dad, that's what I'm going to do. And fourthly, there was a, um, sorry, got to look it up. There was a, there was an imitating of his father. Right? There was a desire to, to imitate his father. And there was a fellowship. There was affection and a fellowship. Right? Jesus knew throughout his entire earthly life that he was not alone, for my father is with me. Even in that cross, when Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Because he felt the weight of our sins on him and he, he felt abandoned by God. Even in that moment, at the end, he says, Father, I commit my spirit to you. And that's what it means for you to have that relationship with Jesus. It means that your father will never leave you. He's not the kind of father who throws his sons away. He's not the kind of father who abandons his sons when they are at their worst. And also changes the way we view our obedience to God. Yes, as Christians, you and I have commandments that God gives us to follow. But those commandments are not the way we earn God's love. It's not the way we maintain our, our, our ability to have a, a relationship with God. But it does happen to be there for your flourishing. Right? Why do you set rules in the household? Why does your dad give you or your parents give you rules or your authority figure give you rules? It's for your flourishing. It changes the way you see obedience. Obedience is not a way and a means to keep your relationship with God. It's actually what you do because you want to please him. You actually desire to please him. And so when you do disobey him, there is a, you don't lose your relationship with God, but you lose your fellowship. You lose that intimacy. And so what drives you back to God is because you long for that intimacy. And that the Bible passage that says, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock, that's not meant for non-believers. That's actually meant for Christians. Jesus is writing to the church. He's saying, I'm knocking at your door. Whenever you sin, when you, whenever you rebel against me and you go back to your old ways, God is saying, come back. Let me back in. Let me share a meal with you. Let me fellowship with you. And it changes the way we view prayer. Jesus says, this is how, this is how you should pray our Father in heaven. Before that, no other person prayed like that. Until Jesus allowed his disciples to say, our Father, you gotta think about it, the entire Old Testament, no prayer, no, no, no person prayed like that, directly calling God their Father. Only Jesus had the right to, and he gave us the permission to call God Father, to have that kind of access you know, John J.I. Packer shares how in the Old Testament, God is emphasized in his holiness. We need to be pure and holy to even have, to be even to stand in God's presence. There's this separation between us and God. There is an emphasis on God, holy, holy, holy. And that doesn't change in the New Testament. God's still holy, holy, holy. But what changes in the New Testament is there is a new newfound emphasis on the boldness and access we have to Jesus, through Jesus. Right, the fact that you and I can cry out to God, Abba, Father, in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. as a child asks their father and wakes him at 2 a.m. saying, I'm thirsty. That's what that's, I think Tim Keller said that, right? That's the kind of access and intimacy God gives you 
in Christ. That you can come to him. And when he sees you, he will have pity and compassion. He will see you with eyes of love, not bothersome. But again, with that, um, third point, sorry, is that Jesus being adopted as sons means that we have a family. It says in verse 9, making all things known to us, the mystery of his, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And in verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, from the beginning of time, God's intention was to unite everything to himself. What the, gospel, what the, what the fall of Adam and Eve, Eve distanced and separated and created division and hostility, Jesus came from the beginning to restore all things in himself, to unite all things. You know, we talked about this earlier, but sin alienates. It alienates us from God. It separates us from God. It alienates us from each other. That's why we see so much division in the world. I don't know in high school, but in high school, you guys, you guys you can see it at lunch, right? You have the, 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 the queen bees at one table. You have the jocks. You have, uh, you know, the nerds and the Asians. And, uh, no, okay, I'm being racist. I'm sorry, okay? It's just the way it is. I got this, I got this from, uh, okay, 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 I'm going to get flamed for this, but I got this, when I was in high school, there was a student, he was really, really like bold, he wrote a blog post, and he like created a grid and map of where everyone sits at lunch, and he labeled them, and people got infuriated, infuriated, it was really bad, because he d- described the defining quality of each group, he was like, and he was, he was Indian, right, and so it was it's kind of like, so I guess it's not racist for him to say, but he called himself the curry crew. And then there was the Koreanos, and there were the, the, you know, the queen bees. And then there were like, he, and then people got so pissed, right? It was, it was, it was a big thing at our school, but it was, it was from Mean Girls. I think he got off Mean Girls. But anyways, right, we're all, it doesn't have to be at church, school, church, right? We're in our own cliques. Right? How often do you venture off from your circle? Right? How often do you actually go over to the other side of the pew, right? Maybe you always sit on this side of the pew. How often do you go to this side and try to engage with someone? Because Jesus says, I came to unite all things to myself. If you're, if you're an adopted son, you recognize and you prize the unity of his body and you strive for that unity. And that's what Paul is calling us to. Or yeah, Paul is calling us to in Ephesians. He's calling us, if you recognize you're adopted, you recognize you have a family. And there should be no division because in heaven there will be no division. There's going to be no distance. There's only going to be love. The last thing is to be adopted sons means we are, um, we have an inheritance. And we are given someone to help us ensure that we will receive this inheritance. You know, Jesus left his disciples with these words. He says, I'm not leaving you as orphans in this world. Don't think that just because I'm going up to heaven to be with my father, I'm going to leave you to fend for yourself, to try to make it to heaven and press on on your own. Don't think I'm leaving you alone. He says, I will send my very spirit, my Holy Spirit, 
to be your helper, to be your counselor, to be your guide, to be the seal of the promise that this inheritance that's waiting for you in heaven, you will receive it. And it's not on your own. I've ensured it. Because my seal is upon you. My Holy Spirit has been given to you. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life, the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to know about God's love. It's one thing to, to comprehend God's love here. But it's nothing to experience it and to feel it. I felt it last night or last yesterday. I went to a conference and just during the worship time. It was an apologetics conference and there was really cool like, like apologists there and it was really cool. But out of all the things, what struck me was just the opening worship. And it wasn't anything special. It was just normal opening worship. And I was just in tears. I was bawling my eyes out. I don't know why. But at that moment, the Holy Spirit was reminding me, you're my son. You've forgotten, but you're my son. I love you. And, you know, God gives us these reminders through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us alone in this world. And it means you have an inheritance. You know, I... I have a book series I used to read when I, was in, when I was a kid. It was called The Series of Unfortunate Events. It's a pretty depressing book because it begins with the Baudelaire uh, children. It's like three of them, right? Um, Claus, Violet, and... Um, oh, wait, how did I forget this? Okay, just a baby girl. Sunny. Claus, Violet, and Sonny, right? And then basically the story opens with them coming back from school or something, and they get news that, oh, yeah, your family perished in a fire. Your parents are dead. You lost everything. <laughs> you don't have a home anymore. You're alone in this world, right? But all the while, what they tell them is, and Mr. Poe, he's like this very insensitive guy. He's kind of a troll. He's like, but by the way, you have an inheritance, but you can't touch it right now. <laughs> you have to come to the coming, you have to be old enough. Once you hit a certain age, this inheritance will be yours. And so the whole series is about how this evil, like distant uncle of theirs is trying to steal their inheritance from them, trying to take their inheritance away. And he's, he's plotting, he's disguising himself, saying, oh yeah, I'm your long lost auntie, or like all these crazy stuff. And he tries to steal the inheritance from them. And eventually at the end, I, you know, I'm not gonna spoil it, but anyways, right? Um, the question is, what is our inheritance that God ensures for us in this world? And sometimes when we're in this world, it feels like the series of unfortunate events. It feels like we're going through one bad thing after another, and you're wondering, God, did you really promise me this inheritance? Do I really have this inheritance? Am I even actually going to get it and actually enjoy it one day? And, you know, sadly, I don't think the Baudelaire's actually got to experience the real inheritance inheritance is not about the money. It's not about the cars. That's what Count Olaf cared about. He cared about the money. I'm sure in the Baudelaire's hearts, what they longed for more than anything was to see their parents again. And so for Christians, our inheritance is not having a fancy mansion in heaven or it's not having a, 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 a you know, Mercedes in heaven. It's not about having a bank account in heaven. The inheritance God promises us is himself. First John chapter three, this is what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are children, God's children now. And what we will has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him 
as he is. And everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What's waiting for us in heaven is God. That you and I will one day see him face to face and be made like him. He is our inheritance and the Holy Spirit is the deposit. It's the reminder that even though you don't see me by face right now, by, by sight right now, my Holy Spirit is with you to remind you I am still there. And when you get there, you will see me, you will have me. And, and so Christians, we praise God because he has adopted us in his son to be sons. And to be adopted son means you are loved. To be adopted son means you are forgiven. To be adopted son means you have a family to be a, that, that you should strive to, for unity with. And if you are adopted son, you have an inheritance. And you're given a helper that will ensure that you will get there. And so as Christians, um, um, let us... Let us strive towards him. Let us press on wherever you are. Let these three A's get you there. Because God has not left you alone to press forward. He has given you his adoption, his anchoring, and his life. I'll end with uh, one last story. Okay? It's a... I stole it from somewhere. <laughs> I thought it was good, though. It talks about adoption. So last time, this is a story of a family and their newly adopted eight-year-old daughter who had never been to Disney World. Her free, previous family always took their biological kids but always left her behind when they went to Disney World. So in her mind, she thought it was because she did something wrong that made her not deserve to go to Disney World. Her new family decided to make her dream finally come true and made plans to go to Disney World together. One month before the trip was to be take place, however, the little girl's behavior suddenly became very bad. She would steal food when she didn't have to. She would lie. She would say mean things to her siblings. The family began to wonder what was going on. The father confronted her about her inexcusable behavior. And the daughter responded, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, aren't you? This is what the father writes. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed the test several times before, so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, you won't I won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown, brown eyes, wide and tear-rimmed. Are you a part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember that right and what's wrong. But you're a part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. I like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel, rest stop, and all the way to Lake Buena Vista. And still, we headed to Disney World on the day we promised. And it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and a lot of lines. 
mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down in her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. And that's the gospel. You and I will one day receive our inheritance in heaven. We will get to the magical kingdom. But when we get there, we will recognize, like Paul, I didn't get here because I deserved to. It's because I was his. So with that, let's respond together in prayer.